This is Appalachian Vibes on Radio IQ. I'm Amanda Baki. Appalachian Vibes is a show that seeks to challenge the expectations and celebrate the diversity of music created in the Appalachian region. This week, North Carolina singer-songwriter Travis Shallow talks about growing through addiction. We learn of the unspoken language between the guitarist and keyboardist of Roanoke, Virginia's James Legault Band, and Radar Rose is Southwest Virginia's darling, with a history encompassing 30 years of touring and songwriting in the Appalachian region. Nicholas Edward Williams is the creator of American Songcatcher. My first guest is Travis Shallow. What is Let It Pass about? I wrote it quick. I've got another songwriter friend of mine that lives in Mississippi that we have a shared Dropbox folder. And whenever either of us are working on something new, we drop it in there. It's another trusted set of ears. And I've always told other songwriters, you know, like, if you can ever find that, use it. You know, it's so valuable. to, um, And how that, you know deals with let it pass i really thought let it pass was kind of a throwaway and what i mean by that is like you know it was a time where when some songs were coming out if they came out too easy i i I had this uh this mindset where something must be wrong with it i had this this whole thing where it needs to be a struggle i need to work for it it's you know it's uh something i've really worked on since then a good girlfriend of mine was going through a divorce and I just kind of saw her struggling with that. So the first verse kind of starts with, with, with me kind of looking from afar at her situation and, um, just kind of, what are the lyrics there? The first verse is, you know, I watch you waiting for things to fall into place, stare at your screen and slowly buckle under the weight. Whatever happened to going down swinging, going down in a blaze. I know you've had your troubles and these ain't the glory days. But you know, if it ain't meant to last, you got to let it pass. And that was kind of my story, my like what I wanted to say to her as she was kind of going through all that. Sometimes you just hold on to these things because they're familiar and not because they're good for you, you know. And I remember I ended up telling her, I'm like, look, you know, you're holding on to a to an electric fence waiting for it to stop hurting you when all you got to do is let go. I think that really broke through. I watch you waiting for things to fall into place. You stare at your screen and slowly buckle under the weight. Whatever happened to going down swinging, going down in a blaze. I know you've had your troubles And these ain't the glory days But you know If it ain't meant to last You gotta let it pass Standing on stage and he remembers the path that it took And the light's gone down and he takes one last look 
Whatever happened to living forever Rock and roll never die He knows he's had his troubles The days are slipping by But he knows If it ain't meant to last You gotta let it pass Happened to going down swinging, going down in a blaze. I know I've had my troubles, these ain't the glory days. Whatever happened to living forever, I thought I'd never die. And I know I've had my troubles, I'm keeping those days behind. But I know If it ain't meant to last Oh, I know If it ain't meant to last But oh, I know If it ain't meant to last You gotta let it pass So I was watching this Muscle Shoals documentary. I remember kind of halfway through it when they start kind of getting these like um, one-off answers from different artists that had recorded it fame. And they're always talking about, you know, there's something in the mud, there's something in the water, there's something mojo. Like why, why Muscle Shoals, Alabama? Why a dry county in the middle of the South It was this pocket for this like output of some of the best music that's been ever recorded. I remember there's this one scene where Rick Hall is like walking down by the river and he talks about the name of the river and the name of the river that the Native Americans had for it. That name that they had for the river translates to river that sings. I was born into that place where everything moves a little slow. From the fields up to the moonlight Where it makes that river glow Got a little bit older Started to hear that sound Used to hear the people talk about it Never knew what they meant But I know now But I know now
Come on in's a song about empathy and forgiveness and just about an old relationship that um, went sour and you see them years later or they kind of come back because they just need a friend. The tagline's like, you know, they knock at the door and you're like, I can't believe I'm saying it. Come on in. Is there anybody in your life that you've had to had to treat like that, to forgive, to uh, allow back in and with open arms? Man, the 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 first one that comes to mind is honestly just myself. I'm telling you, like, you know, luckily I didn't have too much collateral damage from outrunning substance abuse and all the above for years and years. I just had to come to a point where you gotta, you gotta forgive yourself for, for all that bullshit and you gotta just kind of move past it. You know, you gotta remember how you got there, but you, you can't hold on to it when it stops serving you. And uh, there was a big reconnection where I had to kind of really just kind of get back to w- what I wanted out of life, which is a constant daily journey. You know, so it's the whole one day at a time thing. All the the cheesy cliches, they piss you off because they're true. One day at a time is useful because it's just, that's just being present and in the moment. One of my favorite ones was just the serenity prayer. God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change and the courage to change the things I can. Uh, I think that's all I will ever really need in life is the courage to face something or the courage to accept something. When you were getting clean, did you have to go to a lot of treatment centers and try over and over or once you made the decision to get clean, were you just like a one and done? I tried to detox. I mean, every weekend I was trying to fix this house of cards. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it just got so bad. I've never missed a show. You know what I mean? I still did my job, which made it even trickier because it made, you know, especially in this business, if you show up and you do your job and you're singing your song, it's like, it's just part of it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So I think that made it, go on for like another 10 years longer than it should have just because of the occupation and the occupational hazard that it is. What did it take for you to quit? Uh, my body gave out. Yeah, I could just tell. I mean, my closest dealer was a few hours away. 
waiting for him to get there. I mean, opiate withdrawals and was trying to drink through them. And just, I was like, look, I, I could tell that like, I was either going to have a seizure or I could like feel it. You know what I mean? I could feel like something it's like, it's so close. So I could either like literally close my eyes and that could be it. Mm. Or I could make a phone call or like call 911 or something. But the thing was the, the, the messed up part for me, like even though my dealer was on the way, if this is triggering for anybody, I apologize, apologies. But, um, I, I had done so much that day and it wasn't helping my withdrawals. So I went to treatment that, that night I, I've basically, I didn't even know there was a rehab in Wilmington. So I Googled rehab in Wilmington and there's a Wilmington treatment center and I have a number and I call them. I'm like, this is my, like, this is what's going on. And they're like, we have one bed. How quick can you get here? And I'm like, I'm like, literally 15 minutes away so when i got there and they did uh blood work right away they said that my liver was failing to a way where it wasn't even processing the drugs my body wasn't even processing the drugs so i was stuck in dts and the drugs weren't even working what did you have to do to get better how did they help you a long uh, you know a rehab stint and basically as soon as i got my blood work back too like Things were so bad, you know, they were like, you must just feel awful. But since then, I've like really gone down the rabbit hole of like of health and to try to turn all this around. And luckily, I've had no long term irreversible issues, but it was a huge life change. So after the rehab stint, I got out. I did eight outpatient for a long time and then transferred to 12 step stuff and then found a good old therapist. And that's another thing I think should almost be mandatory. <laughs> well, it's good to see him, baby. Even in the shape I'm in, and no one doesn't change a thing. Even when you think it will, you left me on my birthday, child. Like a dog on a chain Now I'm barking at the wind Waiting for the next time you call my name Yeah, it's been a long, hard year And I've been fighting in the alley Chewing on a bone that you're finished with so don't come here, your diamonds and silk, cause he broke your heart again. But then again, if you need a friend, I can't believe I'm saying it. Did you change that too? Oh yeah, your hair's so short I never thought you'd do it But damn, it looks good We talked about the old times Baby, love and the truth But the funny thing is We're both lying, saying we're some 
I've been fighting in the alley Chewing on a bone that you'll finish with So don't come here Your diamonds in silk Cause you broke your heart again But then again If you need a friend I can't believe I'm saying it You're listening to Appalachian Vibes on Radio IQ. I'm your host, Amanda Baki. My next guest is the James Legault Band, hailing from the Blue Ridge Mountains in southwest Virginia. Hello, everybody. I'm James Legault, and uh, I'm here with my brother, Ben Epperly, keyboard player. I'm a guitar player and vocalist. Uh, ben sings and plays as well. We've both been uh, independent songwriters for most of our lives, and then we ran into each other. It was just real good chemistry. We just immediately started playing some amazing things. What style of music do you guys play? It's really hard to grasp sometimes because it's it's an influence of a lot of different styles. To be honest, it's probably in the umbrella of maybe fusion, maybe fusion jazz, maybe. But the thing is, there's some blues moments that happen. There's some funk, and then there's some even kind of progressive rock maybe in there in some of the music and there's another artist that comes to mind to me frank zappa you know he he was just like whatever i i do whatever i feel you know whatever kind of music i'm feeling right now he wasn't worried about a genre he wasn't really you know i did you know it's not like okay i'm going to be funk music i'm going to be rock i'm going to be jazz you know it was whatever was it was a combination yeah. of everything. Yeah, it was pretty much. But I would say probably fusion, maybe. I grew up listening to classical music on old records and was able to, by some miracle, translate that onto the guitar because most of it was cello or violin music. Of course, growing up in South Texas, the blues and the country 
kind of mixed in a little bit. And then, of course, uh, when I got a little older and a little better uh, of a musician, I started trying to bite off more complicated pieces of music from other composers and artists, uh, mainly people like Chicory and stuff like that. People like that, uh, Frank Gambale, people that were just writing incredible music that was above and beyond anything that you would hear in the normal realm of of exposure to music.
I'd like to hear a little bit about your story. You mentioned when we were on the phone that you are actually, uh, that you were in the military. Yes, ma'am. And that you had to quit music during that time period. I did. Uh, you know, I really wanted to go to music college. I wanted to go to music school, but my dad was like, yeah, I'm not going to give you any money for that. I don't have any money. So you get to join the military. So on my 18th, well, my 17th birthday, he dropped me off at the recruiting station and said, good luck, son. <laughs> so, you know, I, I went in and took the test and passed and then wound up uh, joining the army as a, a ranger medic and uh, saw combat twice, um, Operation Desert Storm in 89, Panama, and uh, um, Operation Desert Storm in Saudi Arabia in the early 90s. So um, after I got out of the military, I went to college for engineering because uh, I quickly found I couldn't make any money playing music. And I wasn't very good then either because I had been had taken almost an eight-year sabbatical uh, but I still had it in me, and it, eventually it all came back out again once I got back to a somewhat normal type of a life, living as a civilian. Um, but, you know, it, it, I missed the music the whole time I was there, but I was so preoccupied, preoccupied with trying to stay alive that, it, you know, it, was, it wasn't that hard, the music part. But, uh, so as a medic, were you you were taking care of people, or you were actually fighting? I was fighting, and I also took care of people as well. Wow! You know, when somebody went down uh, on the battlefield, I would go and get them and take them to the battalion aid station, or call in a medevac and those kinds of things. So I I carried a weapon, I fired it, I killed people and stuff, just like other people did, just trying to stay alive. And I was just a kid. How did that um, impact your music at all? Well, music really became my therapy.
That's the James Legault Band on Appalachian Vibes. This is Appalachian Vibes on Radio IQ. I'm your host, Amanda Baki. My next guest is Jane Gabrielle and Anastasia Thompson from the band Radar Rose. I'm asking the question, what is Appalachian music? Where did it come from? Well, the roots of Appalachian music are largely the settler population, uh, largely the Irish, English, the Scots. You know, part of my ongoing discovery as I go forward is through ancestral research, I have learned that I have this whole uh, settler heritage on my paternal side. My dad's family was from Lawrence County, Tennessee, which is in the Appalachians, which is a really weird little jot. It's like, oh, here's this one county in Tennessee that's Appalachian. My grandmother on that side was born in West Virginia, and I have learned that I've got all these names, Riley, Clegg, that came over here on the boat and settled in Virginia and West Virginia, and I'm learning that those things course in my veins. You know, new research tells you that family trauma reverberates for up to seven generations. Well, family trauma does that, so also family knowledge, you know, and, and uh, being naturally drawn to music. I think you've discovered that yourself with your with your your dad's side. I did. Um I was raised by a single mom who had a great appreciation for for music. Uh but other than the radio in a little West Virginia town, we could get one station from Roanoke and it was the best thing ever. I decided when I was 27 that, and I'd already been with Radar Rose for about five years. We, we'd been touring the East Coast. I decided to get big boots and call my biological father and see if he wanted to meet. And that's all I knew. I didn't know anything else about him. I, I knew nothing. And so we decided to meet. It was fantastic. He was super receptive. He said, I've been waiting all these years. I have a half brother and a half sister that had been looking for me and I didn't know. We didn't have the internet back then. Um, and it turns out he was a country drummer for a traveling country band for decades. I said, you gotta be kidding me. We have this in common. It was fantastic.
I write a lot about social justice issues. Our album, One Dozen Live Roses, featured Get to Dance, which was sort of an anthem around here, particularly in the 90s. And it's the main story of that is All God's Children Get to Dance. And that's our LGBTQA plus sort of anthem. It's like, you can't, you can't judge. Who are you to say? God made it. It's beautiful. You know? The song's about equity, wrong place, wrong time, live in peace. This child is a bridge. It's about an interracial child and how that the child is a bridge between two communities. You know, and that was that was very specific. It was written about um, a nephew in the band family that was um, born out of wedlock and he had a black father. And this is in way south Alabama. And it raised some eyebrows at that time. And the churchy thing got into it and like, oh, this is weird. But uh, we wrote that song about young Elijah and he grew up knowing that he was a bridge, you know? And uh, it was just, it was a, it was really a healing uh, effect in the family. He is every color in the crayon box, using peace and love as building blocks. We played it in the living room for the family at Christmas and there was lots of tears and there was healing and it was one of the most churchy moments without a church I think that I've ever been involved in it was just it was like all of us got on the same page it's about this child how old was the baby he was in his mama's belly
I knew growing into womanhood that I wanted to play music or be an artist. We used to joke with my parents and say, don't worry, Mom, music doesn't work out. I've got art to fall back on. (laughs) But but it's worked, you know, for all these years it's worked. That's very exciting. Uh, My grandmother never worked outside the home. She never drove a car. This is my maternal grandmother. You know, my paternal grandmother never drove a car my mom drove a car and she uh, worked outside the home um but a lot of her opportunity was diminished by closed minds she won a, a full scholarship full ride to maryland institute of art and her parents just made it impossible for her to to do it you know they wouldn't take her to school she'd have to take two buses and a train with a giant drawing board and you know, nude models, oh my God, you know, until she, they just wore her down until she finally just dropped out and got married in a largely unsuccessful marriage, though it did not perish in divorce. Um, it might have been better if it did. Um, but I, I, a lot of her opportunity was lost. So I came out the gate going, I'm not going to have kids. Not going to have kids. Just not going to do it. Neither one of my brothers have reproduced either, and I often think, it's an act of self-genocide to end the cycle of trauma and addiction and just all that burden. But I knew that, you know, family was not the pathway for me. So I've done art. I've done music. I've re-enrolled in college. I'm pursuing a, a, uh, my undergraduate degree in socially engaged art at Goddard College in Vermont. And if I graduate in the spring of 2022, which I fully plan to do, I will be the first female in my family to get a college degree. What an incredible accomplishment. I very much value your hard work. How about you, Anastasia? Did you have any of these reckoning moments as you were coming into adulthood and becoming a woman? Not so much because being raised by a single mom, my mom happens to be a badass in that she knows being self-sufficient is possible and let's do this. Here we go. Let's do this. And so only having her as a parent for all these years growing up, you know, 18 years and her illustrating to me, I'm in the workforce. Look, now I'm self-employed. Look, now I'm a court stenographer for the West Virginia State, State Supreme Court of Appeals. And this is how we do it. Um, I just knew that I could do anything I wanted and that's what I was going to do. Shrinking violet, can't you see? Shrinking violet, that is me. All the colors there in the air. Grab you one down, it shows you care. Shrinking violet, can't you see? Shrinking violet, that is me. You're a different shade than me. But I love, I love your sweet diversity yeah. 
That was Radar Rose with Shrink and Violet. What is Appalachian music? Where do the songs come from, and how did the music culture expand to encompass many cultures and genres? There are traditional concepts about Appalachian music that may be rooted in misconception. We discover those misconceptions on Appalachian vibes. For example, the African-American culture is deeply rooted in Appalachian music by the fact that the banjo, a traditional bluegrass instrument, is actually from Africa. My next guest works to answer the question, who are the early influencers of Appalachian music? And what is the history of the songs that have been passed down in his podcast, American Songcatcher? His name is... I'm folk musician Nicholas Edward Williams. American Songcatcher traces the roots of American music from its cultured past to the artists playing it forward today. I've been around this whole country, but I never yet found Fenario. Starting in the late 17th century, waves of Scottish and Irish immigrants were pouring into North America after centuries of conflict, war, and rising land prices. A majority of them worked around the port in Philadelphia, but were eventually pushed out, and they settled throughout the Appalachian mountain range. By 1790, three million of them would call America home, and a fusion of their shared musical traditions was already forming. Some of the songs they brought have lasted hundreds of years, and still live here in America today. One such song can be traced back to Aberdeenshire, Scotland, where it was originally titled Bonnie Lass O'Fivey, about a romance between a young girl and an enemy captain. When her mother forbids them to marry, he threatens to burn the town down upon his return from war, though he dies in battle. After many lyrical changes and titles, journeying to England, then Ireland, before arriving in the Promised Land, the song was first documented in America by the famous English song catcher Cecil Sharp who found hundreds of songs throughout Appalachia that had ties to England. The song went mainstream in America during the folk revival of the 1960s. In 1912, Bascom qualified for law school at Trinity College, which would eventually become Duke University. He later returned to Western North Carolina, where he would lecture on the region's music. There are a lot of unprintable and unsingable uh, stanzas to the old song, However, that is not confused with what we boys used to do in the old days, gather around after a corn shucking or around some gathering, and uh, possibly some of the boys repeat maybe some questionable stanzas and follow it with Rise, Troll, Rise, Troll, Rise, Troll. Bascom pursued a number of other jobs over the next few decades. He practiced law, newspaper publishing, investigating draft evaders for the U.S. Department of Justice in New York, and he worked as a clerk for the North Carolina House of Representatives from 1931 to 1934. Folks at Newham have said that Bascom would cross hell on a rotten trail to learn a funny story, a song, a banjo tune, or a fiddle tune. He's been quoted as saying everything I got is done in The granddaughter of freed slaves, Elizabeth or Libba Cotton, was born in 1893 near Chapel Hill, North Carolina. She taught herself how to play banjo starting around five years old, and working as a housemaid, she was able to purchase her own Stella guitar at age 11. Elizabeth was left-handed, so to make the guitar and the banjo easier, she would just turn them upside down 
and thus created her own method of playing the bass strings with her forefingers and the melody with her thumb, eventually becoming widely known as cotton picking. After writing songs like Freight Train in her early teens and getting married at 15, she was pressured to give up playing guitar by the church, and she did. Nearly 40 years later, after helping a young lost child named Peggy Seeger find her mother, Libba started cleaning house for the famous folk-singing Seeger family. Over the next few years, she relearned how to play guitar while the family was gone, until she was caught by Peggy one day. The family was blown away by what they heard, and Peggy's brother Mike, who was a founder of the new Lost City Ramblers and a folklorist, recorded Libba's first record in an upstairs bedroom when she was 62 years old, right before the blues and folk revival took shape. Soon, she was touring the circuit with other great blues performers coming out of retirement or obscurity. Shake Sugary, released in 1967, is a lullaby that she wrote with her great-grandchildren. And on the recording, it was sung by her great-granddaughter. Oh, they tell me Joe Turner been here and gone As a boy around 10 years old, Bill made himself a cigar box violin inspired by a single-string fiddle player named C.C. Ryder. But he and his siblings had to hide instruments under the house because his mother wanted them to become preachers. His uncle taught him to play fiddle anyway, and Bill learned a handful of spirituals and folk songs. He was a fast learner, and soon performed for tips at segregated picnics and eventually country dances. He also sang and played for the church and its social functions with his friend Lewis Carter, who played guitar. Not even a teenager, Bill additionally worked as a plow hand. By the time that he reached his teens, he grew to be so big and strong that he joined the older men behind the big plows. He learned work and hammer songs while working on road crews and delta levee camps and laying railroad track. Bill got married in his late teens and gave up playing violin for a time as it was often associated with the devil's music, and he became an itinerant preacher between 1912 and 1917. That was until he was asked by two friends to perform at a three-day picnic that would award him a new violin, along with $50, and whatever Kevin tips Hayes. came in. Willie and Gold quit the funnest game and took a chance. These boys were all in a hard place. They didn't have much between them. Just a few hundred dollars, a large brown van, a rusty old black Volvo with flame decals, and a dog. Their plan was to drive across the continent and busk in the streets, performing for gas money and food. The boys picked grapes for two weeks straight to make their seed money. They gathered in Critter's bedroom to play music together for the first time and decided to record it. What came out was ten songs, an album that they titled Transmission in the form of a cassette that they could sell on the road. That was Old Crow Medicine Show's first record. There were definitely a few mohawks floating around back then, Willie said. We had a bit of a rough edge. We were hipster kids who played banjos. The group left Ithaca for their transmission tour in October 1998, busking west across Canada. They never went to bed hungry, and three months later, they circled back east. In the spring of 1999, they moved into a farmhouse on Beach Mountain near Boone, North Carolina. They were embraced by the Appalachian community, and their repertoire of old-time songs grew as they played with local musicians. This is Appalachian Vibes on Radio IQ. I'm your host, Amanda Baki. 
you'd like to learn about any of the artists featured on today's episode, head over to AppalachianVibes.net. You can also nominate an artist there and catch up on past episodes. I'll see y'all next week. If you like what you heard, share it with your friends and kin. Connect with the Appalachian Vibes community on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok. We're all over the place.